Kia and welcome to Goodfellow Podcast. This episode is kindly supported by the Auckland Faculty of the Royal New Zealand College of General Practitioners. I'm Dr Louise Kugler, a specialist GP, and today I'm fortunate to have Dr Matthew Phillips to talk to us about the metabolic approaches to reverse and slow down the progression of Alzheimer's disease. Matt works at Waikato DHB and is a practicing clinical and research neurologist. Matt's foremost passion is to explore the feasibility, safety, and efficacy of metabolic therapies, particularly fasting and ketogenic diets, and creating alternative metabolic states that may lead to improvements in symptoms, function, and quality of life for people with neurological disorders. Earlier this year, in 2021, Matt and his dedicated team published the world's first randomized trial of the use of a ketogenic diet in Alzheimer's disease. Welcome to the podcast, Matt. Thanks, Louise. Pleasure to be here. It's lovely to have you. So dementia can affect anyone, and as people get older, the chances of developing dementia increase. Numbers are rapidly rising, and Alzheimer's is the most common form of dementia, accounting for about two-thirds of cases. So Matt, today we're discussing metabolic strategies for the treatment of Alzheimer's disease, and we're going to talk about both fasting and the ketogenic diet. Many listeners will be familiar with the pathophysiology of Alzheimer's, the laying down of amyloid plaques, but I think less commonly is discussed is the impaired brain energy metabolism of Alzheimer's disease. I wonder if you could talk to our listeners about this, Matt. Sure. Well, as you said, the current paradigm and the paradigm for the last several decades is that Alzheimer's is fundamentally a disorder caused by the laying down of abnormal protein aggregations, whether they be amyloid plaques extracellularly or tau, uh, you know, tangles, neurofibrillary tangles containing mainly tau protein intracellularly. And my approach to this disorder is that it is fundamentally not a disease of abnormal protein aggregations. They are an effect of the true cause, which is essentially mitochondria dysfunction and impaired energy metabolism. And there's a lot of evidence now showing that mitochondria damage and oxidative damage are the two things that probably occur earliest in this disorder. They both precede tangles and the plaques, and therefore they are much more uh, appealing to me as the causative triggers, and we are not treating them with our current treatments uh, very well at all. So just Putting it into perspective, what are the numbers that are affected by Alzheimer's in New Zealand currently? That is a very good and somewhat concerning question. I believe in New Zealand at the moment, we're looking at almost 70,000 people with dementia, which is a clinical syndrome, as I'm sure everyone here knows. Uh, Alzheimer's is the most common process underlying dementia, and it's about two-thirds of all dementia. So we're probably looking at 50,000 people in New Zealand with Alzheimer's disease. The trouble is, I mean, that's a big number. But the truly scary statistic, if I was going to throw one at you, is that the number is doubling every 20 years. And so 20 years from now, we're going to have 100,000 people with Alzheimer's dementia. And in another 20 years, that number will double again. So this is really an incoming tsunami of neurodegenerative disease. And it's very difficult to handle, more difficult to handle than vast majority of medical disorders, because it really does affect 
not just the person, but their entire family. And that makes life difficult for a lot more people than just the patient. Absolutely. And that's what we see in our clinics. It's extremely distressing for the whole family unit. So type 3 diabetes is a phrase that gets thrown around a little bit when thinking about neurological diseases and Alzheimer's. Can you tell me what, what's meant by that? What does that phrase mean? Sure. So as I was saying, the earliest changes in Alzheimer's appear to be the oxidative damage and mitochondria uh, dysfunction. But also fairly early on is another change that has to do with energy metabolism, and that is impaired brain insulin signaling, which is sort of colloquial, has been colloquially termed type 3 diabetes by a number of researchers. The reason they call it type 3 diabetes is because it's a brain-specific form of diabetes that has features of both type 1 and type 2. So it has sort of a deficiency in brain insulin signaling and low insulin levels in the brain, like type 1 diabetes, but it also is characterized by brain insulin resistance, like type 2 diabetes. So it's a very interesting fact of Alzheimer's that you've got not just low insulin, but you've also got brain insulin resistance. And the combination means that people with even mild to moderate Alzheimer's have about a 25% deficiency in their cerebral glucose metabolism. That's a humongous shortfall in an organ such as the brain that requires more energy than any other uh, organ in the body pound for pound. So, you know, you've got this huge energy shortfall caused by this type 3 diabetes, and it, it goes back to the impairments in brain insulin signaling, which means the glucose is just not getting in there, and the neurons are struggling for energy. Great. Thanks for clarifying that, Matt. So in the early days, patients are often offered medications, which are thought to slow down the progression of Alzheimer's disease, but these are only effective for some and for a short window of time. And I've often seen my patients and families asking what else they can do. So we mentioned that you've been involved in this randomized crossover trial in the YCATO and it's shown excellent results. So can you tell us about initially the background to this trial getting underway? Sure. Well, trials like this, although it was a small trial, are always several years of work and a lot of work to establish something like this that goes against the brain of uh, how people perceive a disorder like Alzheimer's. I guess the conception of it uh, was based on a similar trial we did in Parkinson's disease in 2018. That was published in 2018. And in that one, we applied a ketogenic diet to people with Parkinson's. And so I, the natural follow-on was Alzheimer's because Parkinson's is difficult, but Alzheimer's is arguably even more difficult for patients and caregivers. And it just, it's fundamentally how I view the disorder. I looked at the research I've spent <laughs> hundreds of hours reading papers on the various theories. And to me, the, uh, the energy deficiency theories, particularly mitochondria dysfunction, has the most, uh, if you look at things rationally and reasonably, and don't just believe what people tell you, uh, that theory has definitely got the most um, sense to it, to my mind. Uh, you know, rather than attacking all these plaques and tangles, go further back in the disorder and address the energy problems. So that's where I guess I got fired up and, and wanted to see if a ketogenic diet, which uh, for several reasons can repair and improve the energy deficiency, could actually help people in real life. So tell us about the trial and the intervention. Sure. The trial was 
uh, randomized crossover design, which is a very powerful kind of design. So we had 26 participants. We randomly allocated half of them to uh, their normal diet plus low-fat uh, recommendations, so healthy diet recommendations that would, people would normally be given. Uh, but those are optional recipes. They basically stuck to the normal diet and threw in optional recipes here and there. The other half went on a uh, modified ketogenic diet, modified in that we specifically designed it for people with Alzheimer's. Uh, and both groups followed their respective diet for 12 weeks. And then we had a 10-week washout period where everyone went back to the normal diet for 10 weeks. And then we flipped the diets so the people that had done the usual diet before did the ketogenic diet and vice versa for another 12 weeks. And that's a very powerful design because everybody in the trial gets to try both diets and each person access their own control and it minimizes a lot of statistical and comparison problems that you would have otherwise. So Matt, you mentioned the modified keto diet for Alzheimer's. How does that differ from a keto diet normally? That's a good question. So ketogenic diets, the actual term is about 100 years old. And for most of that time, almost all of that time, uh, we've been using conventional ketogenic diets, which should be classified into four main types, classic ketogenic diet, the MCT diet, and then there's a um, modified Atkins diet and an LGIT diet. So there's four sort of classic ketogenic diets that have largely been used in children with epilepsy. And to be honest, they're quite restrictive and a bit difficult. Other than the modified Atkins, they require weighing of food and all these things. So this has made it really challenging to apply them in, in real life particularly to adults. So a modified ketogenic diet is the other kind of ketogenic diet that's rapidly gaining support and momentum in the literature and in, and in general. And that's basically the only diets I use for my patients are the modified keto ones, with rare exceptions. And the modified ketogenic diet loosens things up. It allows you to be, uh, they're sort of mild to moderate strength ketogenic diets, but they're extremely uh, flexible in how they can be applied. So for the Alzheimer's study, uh, we provided a plan that could be used by someone who prefers carnivore style completely or vegetarian or anything in between. And we had patients, we had one vegetarian and we had a couple carnivores in the trial, not a problem. And it didn't matter whether they're carnivore or vegetarian as long as they're in ketosis. And another thing about the Alzheimer's modified diet, we purposely put in some, Alzheimer's is associated for whatever reason with a sweet tooth. So these people love sweets. And so you have to account for that. You can't just throw in a diet that has no sweet tasting foods. I, I, to my mind, that's going to fail. So we had to give them sweet tasting uh, dessert-like recipes with a little bit of natural sweetener, no sugar. And so it was modified in that sense as well. The modified ketogenic diets really are the future of ketogenic diets. To me, it's like the conventional ones are, are like, um, you know, a lot of the, they're, they're 100 years old, the classic ketogenic diet. It's like comparing a Model T forward to uh, Tesla. The modified ketogenic diets are the Teslas. And why would you, why would you base any of your re recommendation or thinking about a ketogenic diet uh, or about, a, by analogy, a car based on the old model that nobody really uses anymore? So modified ketogenic diets are exciting. They are the future of ketogenic diet therapy, in my opinion, particularly for people with difficult disorders like Alzheimer's. So you were aiming to get your patients into ketosis? Yes. I guess I should basically define a ketogenic diet for some people who may not know. So they're very high fat, adequate protein, low carbohydrate diets. And uh, when I say high fat, you're looking at 60 to 70% fat intake by weight, which is about 80 to 90% fat intake by calories. 
So the one we used was about 60% fat intake by weight and about 80% by calories. And with that, the idea is that um, you're restricting carbohydrates so much that the body has to turn its entire metabolism from glucose to fat slash ketone based metabolism. So you're changing the whole metabolic state of the body, the whole thing. And when you do that, the liver takes all the fat, whether it's from your body fat, as in fasting, or from fat you're eating, as in the keto diet, turns that fat into ketones. And the ketones are a superior energy molecule to glucose that are particularly uh, avidly consumed by brain and muscle tissue. And so the idea is to get the ketones to a certain level in the blood. And we were aiming for a level of about one to two millimolars per liter, which the patients measured themselves every day with the monitor that we provided. So they were in physiological ketosis, which I got to add, is very different from pathological ketoacidosis, which is what we were all le learned about in med school, which uh, we are all quite scared of for good reason. Yeah, excellent. So they were doing a finger prick test, looking at blood analysis. That's right. We just provided them all a handheld blood monitor, very inexpensive. And every night they would just measure their glucose and their ketone level, write it in the booklet, the diet plan booklet. And uh, yeah, they just kept doing that. And it's an excellent way to let people know how they're doing. And if they're not doing well, it, it allows them to contact me and then I can, we can troubleshoot, well, what's happening? Oh, well, it's probably that half a banana that you had, <laughs> you're having every morning that you didn't know was not ketogenic. So you can nip those things quickly. You can stop them within two or three days. Whereas if we didn't have the monitor and the feedback, those, you know, that person might be eating a banana for several weeks and think they're doing a ketogenic diet, but they're actually not. Okay. So you mentioned the sweet tooth and high fat. I'm wondering about adherence. So how did your patients or, or study participants get on as far as adhering to the ketogenic diet? Yeah. So we had 26 people. So first of all, of course, the usual diet with the recommendations, that was 100% adherence because how could you be anything otherwise? So uh, the ketogenic diet out of the 26, uh, we had 21 finish the 12 weeks. Now there's a proviso there. And if I was going to redo the trial, I must say I would add this as an um, exclusion criterion. Of the five people that did not make it the full 12 weeks, four of them never intended to actually do it. It was actually their partner slash caregiver who was, to use the correct word, desperate for this person to, to enter this trial and try a new therapy. And so uh, despite the actual patient not really wanting to do the intervention, they proceeded. And so we had a couple people withdraw in the first week because the patient just decided they were never going to do it. And so I should have screened that out at the start, asking the patient particularly, would they want to do it? Long story short, there was only one of those five people who withdrew because of a ketogenic diet-related side effect. And that was a fellow who uh, actually enjoyed the food, but he we, we increased the coconut oil past the recommended amount and unfortunately, uh, one of the main side effects of coconut oil is diarrhea. And he developed some di diarrhea for a couple of days that was quite distressing to him. And so he decided to uh, fold out after that. So if you look at the actual diet-related withdrawals, there was only one out of the 26. Awesome. Ma many of my colleagues will have been brought up and prescribed to their patients a low-fat diet for most conditions. Um, prescribing a keto or low-carb diet may be a bit scary for them and they will be worried about coconut oil and saturated fat and an elevated cardiovascular risk. So is this something that we need to worry about? That's my first question. And how were your patients monitored and how were their lipid profiles affected? 
would they have yeah. previously? No, that's a good question because you're right. That is the one, uh, probably the one thing that people, doctors worry about the most because of what we were taught when we were younger. So we did measure their cardiovascular risk factors. And obviously the HbA1c's dropped significantly in the ketogenic diet compared to the normal diet. The triglyceride level didn't change. It actually dropped, but not it did not quite reach statistical significance. So the ketogenic diets, ketogenic diets are well known to drop triglyceride levels. And the high-density lipoprotein cholesterol increased statistically significantly, and that's well known too. So you've got two very good, two markers going in very good directions. And those are the two markers that people actually talk about. They're actually criteria for the metabolic syndrome. The LDL cholesterol is not a criteria. Now, what happened with the LDL cholesterol, and I'm not surprised what happened, it went up by almost about one millimole per liter. So it went up slightly. Nobody had a tremendous rise. However, we know from uh, ketogenic diets and fasting, uh, ketogenic diets do raise the total LDL, but it's not the total LDL that matters. It's the particle size. It's the ratio of large buoyant to small dense LDL particles. We know that ketogenic diets increase the large buoyant ones, which are not proatherogenic. There's sufficient evidence for me to say that. I used to hedge my bets and say, well, I'm not sure, I'm not sure, but I'm just coming out and saying it flat out now. There's enough data and I'm tired of dancing around the subject. So ketogenic diets, yes, they increase the total LDL, but that does not matter. What matters is that they increase the particle size and they don't increase the small dense ones. And that to me is an overall healthy adaptation. And so overall, the rational person would say that the ketogenic, the people on the ketogenic diet had an improved cholesterol profile. So I do not worry about applying these therapies to people with heart disease. Beyond that, even if it did confer a slight increase in heart attack risk, you're talking about Alzheimer's disease. It's probably one of the top three toughest disorders to have, period. Far worse than having a you know, cardiac coronary vascular disease anyways. Anyone who's treated a number of people with Alzheimer's knows this. So I'm not sure it would even be a, a absolute contraindication, even if that were the case. But I do not think that's the case. If you look at the evidence rationally and comprehensively, and not just listen to what people say and what we were taught, that is not something you will be worried about once you start applying these therapies. Okay. So Matt, you mentioned subfractions. Is this something that we can, if someone is concerned, can we measure this? Yes, you can. It, but you have to go beyond the standard cholesterol profile. So it's. Uh, in New Zealand, you know, I, I think you'd have to probably get the patient to pay for it. I don't routinely ask for it. I've asked for it in a couple of patients, but um, at this point in time, I think it would be difficult to get it routinely done. Okay, so it's a private test. It can be done if someone is concerned yeah. about that LDL going up. And I think that's something that I do hear clinically is, oh gosh, the LDL has gone up. We shouldn't recommend this diet. But actually you're saying quite safe. It's a subfraction that we're not worried about. Correct. Outweigh the costs. Okay, thank you for Correct. clarifying that. So we've talked about what you did, how you did it, how the patients were monitored. What were the results? Okay, so we had three primary outcomes for this trial. And, and so primary outcomes of the outcomes of main interest. Uh, secondary, we had a number of secondary outcomes. So like the cardiovascular risk factors were all secondary outcomes. But the primary ones were, of course, cognition, function, uh, daily function, and quality of life. So Alzheimer's is characterized not just by a declining cognition, typically memory or executive dysfunction. It's also characterized by a decline of function. And of course, going along with both of those things is declining quality of life. And uh, if you look at uh, literature and research on what patients say, the two things that matter the most to them 
our daily function of quality of life. If those can be maintained, it's more important to them than the cognition. So we found that all three markers improved. However, the cognition was not statistically significant. It did not quite get there. The daily function quality of life both improved statistically significantly. And I have to say, and this is very important, the difference was clinically significant. If you look at minimally important clinical change, they both uh, surpassed that. And that was kind of the exciting finding of the study, I guess, because that is something that you rarely see with any other therapy. And this was only 12 weeks of a dietary modification. You've mentioned it was only 12 weeks with a total um, trial extended over 40 weeks. So can we and should we be telling our patients with Alzheimer's disease to go on keto full time? Should we be prescribing a keto diet? Very good question. The trouble is, um, so on one perspective is that we don't have enough evidence and we don't. This is really the first randomized trial ever of a ketogenic diet in Alzheimer's disease. There are, are some other single arm studies and some case series out there. Uh, however, the, those experimental designs are quite a lot weaker because you, you can't rule out the placebo effect, which is very powerful. So you've got one trial, I guess, that um, shows benefits, small trial. It's not without its own limitations. There's no such thing as the perfect study. Then again, on the other hand, you have a disorder that has really no effective therapy. The medications only mask symptoms, and they only do that for an average of six months. After that, people are back to where they started, and there are side effects associated with those. And uh, the side effects in our trial with the modified ketogenic diet were slight. So you've got that argument on the opposite spectrum. You've got a terrible disorder that has no treatment. So is one randomized controlled trial with several single arm studies enough? I think you have to think about it. Would I do it? Would I want one of my uh, relatives to do it? And the answer is uh, undoubtedly yes. I saw um, you could tell the improvement. You try to be uh, objective and unbiased in these things. And I was not involved in the assessments at all. The reviewers were all other neurologists and geriatricians who were blinded to what diets people were on. But I could see the improvement in some of these people. It was clear as day. And so when people ask me about dietary changes, I, my fallback is always to say, eat real food. Don't eat processed food. Uh, we process the heck out of a lot of our food nowadays, particularly processed carbohydrates. And I tell them to get rid of snacking. Just stick to three or ideally two meals a day. So that introduces a little bit of fasting as well. And between those two things, uh, that's sort of my fallback. Now, if people are really interested what more can I do? What about a ketogenic diet? If they actually bring that up themselves, I will tell them about it and I'll support them in that dietary change. And I do that for a number of my patients, not just with Alzheimer's, but with a number of other very difficult disorders that quite frankly, we don't have a good treatment for. So I think it's reasonable to offer this to people now after this trial. I do think it's reasonable. With the proviso that you explain to people the evidence is still limited. We do need more trials. and. Uh, I, I think it's important that the person prescribing it has some knowledge, ideally some in-depth, as in they do it themselves or have done it themselves extensively, so they know what to watch for. There are a few side effects to watch for, very easy to avoid if you know what to do. But if you don't know what to do, they can be problematic. So I, I think it's reasonable to offer it, yes. Excellent. Thank you for clarifying that, Matt. Moving on to fasting, you've mentioned fasting and even just dropping down to two meals a day can be, be beneficial. And there's a lot of hype around fasting in the general community at the moment, but there have been some good trials on fasting. 
so I wonder if you can talk to us about the results of those sorts of trials and how fasting differs to keto. Okay, so I call fasting and ketogenic diets both metabolic strategies. And I fundamentally view most of our, the disorders of the day, the lifestyle disorders, which you can boil them down to four main things, atherosclerosis, cancer, neurodegeneration, and the metabolic syndrome, which is not a disorder. It's a constellation of uh, disease markers. Those four things compromise most of the top 10 causes of death today. They're all fundamentally metabolic. If you look at them, uh, again, I think from an objective lens and you try not to just believe what you were told in medical school. And so it makes sense to me to apply metabolic-based therapies, which we are not doing. And the two most common and applicable ones are fasting and ketogenic diets. There are other ones, but those are the two most common and applicable ones. Fasting basically does the same thing as a ketogenic diet, but it uses your own body fat as the source of the ketones. The ketogenic diet is extrinsic fat uh, derived, whereas the fasting is intrinsic. So of course you're going to lose weight and you can only do fasting so long before you have to eat, otherwise you're going to keep losing weight. Fasting though is more powerful if you do it multi-day fasting. So if you have fasters or four, five, six, seven days in duration, those are called uh, prolonged fasts, then it's more powerful than the diet. You get the ketones higher and the glucose lower and the uh, metabolic switch. So it's, it's said to be a metabolic switch from the cells in the body using glucose as the primary fuel to using ketones is more pronounced. And really fasting is more powerful because that, the pronounced metabolic switch is the key. That is what kicks the body from growth and replication mode, which is what three meals a day plus snacks plus lots of carbohydrates does to us. It makes us always in growth and replication mode. The metabolic switch in the ketosis makes your body go into a carbohydrate restricted mode, whereby it stops emphasizing growth and uh, replication, and it goes into survival and repair, and most especially mitochondria renewal. So fasting does that very well. Keto diet does that to an extent, but fasting does that very well. Ideally, I think uh, they can be combined, and there's not a lot of people at all doing that. I'm starting to move uh, into that area with my patients now, combining the two. And so you've got these, these two strategies, I think, can be uh, widely used, and pe people like them because they're self-empowering. They don't cost the medical system really anything at all. Those are all additional adjunctive reasons. But at the end of the day, I think we've got a, a huge tsunami of lifestyle disorders and this old approach of um, trying to target a disease process by removing, uh, lowering LDL cholesterol or removing the, the plaques or tangles and neurodegeneration or, or just trying to you know, fix genetic mutations and cancer. That's not working because these are not uh, disorders related to those things. Those are effects of the true cause, which is mitochondrial dysfunction. It needs a metabolic strategy. You've mentioned a couple of um, ways of fasting, but what does fasting involve? You know, I hear terms of water fasting, very low carbohydrate diet, fasting mimicking diets. Can well, you the trouble is the definitions of fasting are still evolving, but even amongst the researchers. But basically fasting is voluntary and controlled limitation of food and or drink intake for a specified period of time, typically 12 hours to seven days. And intermittent fasting describes periods of 12 hours to 48, and uh, periodic fasting describes periods of two days to seven days. Now, the intermittent fasting can be divided into alternate daily fasting or time-restricted feeding, which is sort of like 16 hours a day that you fast and eight hours a day to eat. And this uh, thing that Dr. Mosley popularized, the five and two diet, which is five days a week you eat normally and two days you restrict uh, your calorie intake severely. The periodic fasting uh, can be broken down into prolonged fasting, which is two to seven days, basically, you know, a proper fast, 
or you can do this fasting mimicking diet, which is just a calorie intake of about 30 to 50% of normal intake for that time. So the fasting mimicking diet really is calorie restriction, but it, it makes the body go into a lot of fasting-like changes. Now, in terms, that's the timing. And you also asked about um, how do you define the intake? So you can do a pure, like no food, no water, like in Ramadan fasting. You can't do that for very long, obviously. You need water. So most people do water-only fasting, so nothing but water, or they do fluid-only fasting, which is you allow water and some other calorie-free drinks like black coffee and tea during the fast. I, I like those ones because coffee uh, and tea can be good for suppressing hunger and things like that. And then uh, you can take it up. You can have the fasting mimicking diet, which allows uh, little bits of food. And uh, yeah, it really, it's quite versatile fasting. And the key to it, um, one of the additional reasons it's so powerful is that you can, it doesn't matter how busy a person's lifestyle is, you can fit it in and it's going to make their life simpler. Because skipping meals and not having to worry about what you're eating actually takes a lot of physical and uh, mental stress off one's day. As far as fasting goes, rather than keto, we've talked about keto, but fasting and Alzheimer's, there have been some studies and they have been quite powerful. Can you talk us through a few of those? Yeah, to my knowledge, there's only been animal studies uh, with fasting and Alzheimer's. So, so when you talk about studies, uh, there are observational studies and interventional studies. So uh, randomized control trials, interventional, much more powerful than observational studies because observational studies can only detect correlations. And that can be confusing. People can often mix up cause and effect, which is seen in the literature a lot. Uh, whereas interventional studies, if you do them correctly, you know that the thing you changed in the trial is the cause of the outcome. So in animal studies, there's pretty strong evidence that fasting can uh, delay neurodegeneration. In, but this is in Alzheimer's models in, uh, in mice and rats. Now, although that evidence is strong, to my mind, I, I try to shy away from the animal research as much as I can. I use it. It's, it's good to base questions on, and it's, it is important. However, there's this problem of translation to human research, and it rarely translates, actually. So you have to be very careful when uh, people get very excited about something that happens in a rat or a mouse, because we're not rats or mice. So uh, the thing about fasting in Alzheimer's is that in humans, to my knowledge, there's no interventional studies. And that means it's a big gray zone. I don't know how it would work in Alzheimer's. I think it would be challenging to implement in people with Alzheimer's because, again, there are behavioral difficulties in them that make them, uh, some of the, many of them, more uh, compulsive and not want to, quote, unquote, follow the rules of a fast or, or a ketogenic diet, for that matter. I, it could be done. I know it could be done. Yeah, but there's no really good evidence supporting humans at this point in time. Lovely. Thank you, Mitch. To conclude our podcast today, your practice-changing take-home messages for our listeners, please. So I would like to convey to our uh, listeners that people with Alzheimer's fundamentally display a brain-specific form of insulin resistance that results in deficient glucose metabolism. So the Alzheimer's brain is starving for glucose and energy. The second point is that they all show, so, show significant mitochondria dysfunction, and that precedes the appearance of the plaques of things. So these two facts, to me, say that Alzheimer's is fundamentally a metabolic disorder, and we're not treating the metabolic problems with any of our approaches. The third point is that metabolic strategies, such as fasting and keto diets, create ketones. The ketones can bypass the insulin resistance because they don't use the same transporters, and the ketones can stimulate multiple mechanisms. Uh, and the diet itself does this, not just uh, with ketones, but otherwise, on focused on mitochondrial biogenesis and renewal. 
The fourth thing is that uh, in this trial, which we did, which was the first randomized trial of ketogenic diet in Alzheimer's, the people did show statistically and clinically meaningful improvements in the daily function and quality of life, which are important. And finally, I'd say that if you're thinking about applying this to your patients, well, should you do it? Do we have enough evidence? I'd say given the efficacy and safety data to date, I think it is reasonable to offer it to people with Alzheimer's. However, you will find, uh, of course, varying opinions on that. But I think it's reasonable. Yes, and as you mentioned before, Matt, uh, if you don't have the expertise in keto, getting someone to assist you with that so it's implemented safely. Yeah, it's absolutely true. It's not that hard for people to follow, but they need a guide. Absolutely. Well, thank you for your time today, Matt. It's been an absolute pleasure and thought-provoking. So thank you for coming along onto the podcast. You're most welcome. Thank you for having me. If you're a New Zealand GP and would like to claim some CPD points, please do that. There'll be Matt's trial in our resource section on the website, goodfellowunit.org. Thank you for listening.